This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. What's going on? Back from leave. Ah, yes, I saw that uh, somebody posted on Twitter that you are back from leave because they saw a flurry of activity on the Rails Rails repository. They saw me closing a ton of pull requests. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. We've got the Rails team at Shopify is a lot bigger than when I left. They had to they had to replace you. They did. <laughs> with with 20 people. You are a 20x developer. <laughs> no, there's a uh... <laughs> I'm actually not sure if one of them was actually on the team before I left or not. He's been he's been around, but we've got a new thing that we're doing where basically people within the company can submit a project that they want to work on and we let them take a 3-month open source sabbatical and come work with the Rails team to implement that project. So basically it'll it's like a mentorship for open source kind of thing or maybe not even mentorship but just like an opportunity to do the open source work. Or a combination of the both? Yeah, it's a combination of both. There's mentorship involved, but then also they're able to work full-time on it for three months. That is pretty awesome. Yeah. Especially given our last conversation about paying people for open source development. Yes. Um, although that's more down the corporate line that you were trying to get away from somehow. but Sure, but I do, you know, I think for people who don't want to necessarily maintain open source projects themselves but want to get more heavily involved, this is a really good way to go about doing it. Yeah, that's cool. How are they going to select who gets to do the three-month sabbatical? I think it was just the Rails team picked the person who had the proposal we liked best, and that seemed most likely to be something that could be executed within three months. So when you say Rails team, you don't mean people at Shopify who develop Ra- who who write Rails applications. You mean people at Shopify who work on Rails open source. Yeah, so we've got a team. We're now four people of people who uh, our job is is maintaining Rails and dealing with how Rails impacts the rest of Shopify. Previously, that meant we were responsible for Rails upgrades. Now it's we're responsible for coordinating how the rest of the teams handle Rails upgrades. But we're trying to do a, a bit more of a like, no, this is actually everybody's problem uh, approach yeah. this this time around. That seems like one of those things you don't want to get into. Like you don't you don't want to find yourself being the security person. And you yep. don't want to find yourself being the Rails upgrade person. Those yep. are the things that you that you want to avoid in your career if you can. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's uh, me, Raphael, a guy named Edward, and then our current open source sabbatical members named Lisa. Cool. What's Lisa working on? Are you free to divulge that information? Yeah. No, it's nothing new. Uh, it's something we, we've talked about before, I think. Um, she's moving the attributes API over to Active Model. Okay. Cool. And then has also just been helping with general issue triage and uh, pull requests to sort of... She she was not familiar with Rails internals before starting the sabbatical. So right now we're still doing a lot of uh, just issue triage to gain some familiarity. Yeah, that makes sense. Should we talk about some of the feedback we got? Yeah, let's talk. We got a lot of feedback. People like this uh, getting paid to work on open source topic. So I keep saying the last episode, but by the time this comes out, there will be an episode in between. But I think I think everybody will follow. So in episode one, oh crap. <laughs> Do you have a list where all this is aggregated somewhere that I can look at, or are you just looking at Twitter replies? I'm probably just going to look at Twitter replies. Right. Uh, in episode 118, we talked about the use of Patreon to fund open source projects and how we, 
you had some reservations about it, and I had some slight reservations about it too. I think that's a fair characterization. I don't think either one of us said you shouldn't do it, but we both kind of felt like it differed from other uses of Patreon where it's clear who's responsible for the content you're supporting, whereas in large open source projects, it's not always the case that it, uh, right. that's clear because there are both other contributors in code, in code and external contributors to community-oriented things. But we got a lot of feedback. Probably the biggest was from Devin, Devin Estes. Yes, he uh, wrote a very good blog post uh, summarizing his thoughts on the matter. Right, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And I think it, it, he took like an, an economist view of it. Um, yep. I don't think he's an economist, but he is an armchair economist, I think. That's how he classified it. But basically just saying that open source is a market, and here are the factors in the market, and here's how the market's changing. And it's a really interesting blog post. The big thing that I think I kept coming back to when I was reading it is like, <laughs> open source is a market for the people who contribute to it and maintain it, but then it's just a cash that people steal from for everybody else. <laughs> right? It's like a it's like a market if you if I were selling you apples, but then anybody else could just come up and steal the apples. <laughs> yeah, I mean, other than the apples are in a basket that says free apples, please take them. <laughs> right. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it throws off the entire the idea that that's a market because there's this, there are these corporations that stand to gain a large benefit without contributing anything back. Devin made the point that there are other aspects to it being a market besides just money, right? Because open source does mm-hmm. tend to to get you you know better reputation as a developer, gets your name to be more well known. Right. I think that I totally agreed with that. And the non-monetarial benefits, the community aspects of it, like he mentioned when he first moved to Germany, he was very isolated, and so that gave him something to kind of feel a part of something again yeah so yeah i mean i it was really well written and people should read it yeah i don't think he necessarily disagreed with (laughs) what we were saying but it was just another another different a different view of things well and down towards his conclusion he made a good point which is that what open source really needs to be sustainable is more people who are able to spend small amounts of time working on open source at their day job Mm -hmm. yeah i think there's there needs to be a mix like the one day a week works well for some things and then, like, the three-month block works well for bigger projects that require larger chunks of time uh, without without having to context switch. Yeah. And I think that if we had more people even able to spend a day every week or a day every two weeks or two days every month or whatever it might end up being, if we had more people able to do that, it would be a start. Yeah, definitely. And I think companies are very... are like. I work with a lot of startups uh, as a consultant, and I think they're very short-sighted about these things sometimes. And maybe that's because, you know, that's startup life, being a little short-sighted. But they'll often ask us, like, well, how do you recruit? How do you do this? How do you do... And, like, one great way to do that is to be a part of the community that you're recruiting from. Yeah. And so if you're trying to recruit Rails developers, contributing to open-source Rails projects, or writing blog posts about your experiences using rails will eventually do that and it won't even take that long like i still get the ruby weekly newsletter i don't know if you do but i've been getting it for years and like if i see the same person in there three or four times within a couple months like that association is drawn like where it's like Mm -hmm. oh this person's an expert at whatever um and whether or not that's true i don't know um (laughs) but it's just like oh man this guy again or this person again they're killing it you know and that association is drawn so if if you could get like an engineering blog up and running where you are writing about your experiences and then that can kind of 
inform perhaps some contributions, things like that. You have to give your people time to do that. Like give a Friday afternoon to write up something that they did that was interesting this week. But the benefit is going to be both like <laughs> the market will work <laughs> if right. you let it. So yeah, if you work at a company where um, you use open source software, but don't get a chance to contribute back, try pitching it that way. Not even necessarily doing the code contributions at first, but maybe just writing, right? And then you'll find that like the thing you wrote about spurs a contribution, and then you can write about that contribution and things like that. It's kind of snowballs. Yep. But everywhere I've suggested that when people ask like, well, what's, what's one way I could get more like well-qualified candidates to know about us? And I'm like, oh, you could start a blog where you could write about like, say these five problems that we had this week. <laughs> and it's always like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And then nothing. Right. <laughs> right. Well, because the question was actually, how do I get more people to apply without having to actually do any work <laughs> or without having to take the people who are currently doing the development work off of that to do this other right. thing? Right. You know, if they could click some boxes and push the job listing to some magical site that's going to get them better candidates, then I think they would do that. But yeah, some more people should do that. <laughs> More companies, I guess, should do that. It's a shame we don't have a job site sponsoring the podcast right now. This would be a great place to interject an ad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of job sites sponsoring the podcast, ThoughtBot is hiring. <laughs> <laughs> we have an excellent blog and we contribute to open source and have many useful open source libraries. We're hiring Rails developers, Elixir developers. Uh, if you listen to this podcast, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast and don't do Elixir or Rails. They just like to hear us talk for some reason. Uh, <laughs> but if you are like an excellent React developer or have been doing a lot of React Native, I want to talk to you. So tweet me, email me, whatever you can to get in touch with me if you want to do that. Shopify is also hiring if you either live in Canada or interested in moving to Canada. <laughs> Not into your basement in Albuquerque? <laughs> Not into my basement in Albuquerque. <laughs> I'm not going to go on more of a pitch than that because I'm going to guess that like everybody who listens to this podcast who is either in Canada or wants <laughs> to live in Canada, I've already spoken to. <laughs> so. All right. Sounds good. If you haven't, you, yes, you, you one person, shoot me a tweet. <laughs> anyway. uh, other feedback about our episode was that uh, the problem was capitalism. Well, I mean, of course the problem is capitalism. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that was one. Some folks wanted to bring our attention to Gratipay, which is a thing about funding projects, like specifically focused around that. Um, yeah. I haven't really looked at it. haven't heard about it. There was uh, someone in the diesel get a room. I don't remember what it was called. They pointed me at a service that was specifically for funding open source projects. How would that differ? I don't understand. Uh, it was just, I think their whole thing was it was very transparent about exactly what the money was being spent on. And it wasn't so much being spent on paying people. It was spent on fixed costs. Yeah. That, that was going to be my, my own follow-up question would be like, I think I'm having a hard time deciding whether or not this is like cool or not because I don't have a specific use. Like I'm not looking at a, and I know you didn't want to like out somebody to say like, I disagree with the, what this person has done, but I think it could be done really well in that manner where you're like, here's a, a way you can contribute back to the project and here's how that's used and here's how I arrived at that, how that should be used. And yeah. if it really is just fixed costs, I don't think anybody can really argue with that. It's like, I'm going to try and cover some fixed costs. But it, it's trickier when you get above the, we've covered our fixed costs. This cover up in the diesel getter as well, because one thing that was raised was just, I actually do have some fixed costs associated with diesel. If nothing else, just the domain costs money. But then uh, one thing that I would be interested, so like, okay, if I had a Patreon and I specifically tried to get $70 a year to cover the cost of the domain, cool. I feel like that's... Very straightforward what's going to, and I have no 
strong feelings about it. But then, so like I paid, um, I think 2,500 for the design of the website and the logo. Right. But it's not, that's not a recurring cost, but typically these sort of funding things are recurring sponsorships. Well, what you could do is say like, I'm going to do this to try and recoup this cost. And if I receive an excess of that, then I will donate it to X or I will distribute it in this way. Yeah. And that would be an interesting way to do it. I can't find the name of the site. I'll, I'll find it and we'll put it in the show notes. But I was just glancing on there and it was, um, it was either Webpack or Babel. One of the JavaScript projects in like the build tools realm has $100,000 a year of funding through the site. Through Patreon? No, through this one that's open source focused. Huh. Wow. Good for them. Yeah. It was just like, that's a surprising amount of money for a single project through any form of funding, especially one that you would think wouldn't really have that many costs. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they've got a lot of costs. They, who knows? Maybe they've got performance testing on dedicated things. I don't know. Sure. Or maybe they designed a really nice website. <laughs> <laughs> open Collective in its webpack. Hmm. It's got a nice design. It's interesting. I also was thinking about like, what if ThoughtBot added to all of their repos, like a Patreon to the ThoughtBot organization, right? How would I feel about that? And how would people who don't work at ThoughtBot <laughs> feel about that? And I think that would be harder. I mean, there's obviously fixed costs that we have the same fixed costs, right? We have the fixed cost of domains and the fixed cost of that's about it. Um, <laughs> Very high fixed costs. Right. And you could argue that like by giving to a company, you're supporting like a wider range of people to do the work somehow. I don't know that like, I, I, I don't know that ThoughtBot would ever even consider doing that. And by ThoughtBot consider doing that, that just basically means somebody at ThoughtBot feeling like we should do it. Um, <laughs> right. There's no magical them that decide these things. But because I, I think the reason we do that thing is because Primarily because we want to, and secondarily because it's good content marketing. Right. And I think that that would probably be it. But I, I wonder, like, how do you think that would be looked at if we started doing that everywhere? Like, how, what would other people... I mean, I would just have the same question that we were talking about in the last episode. So if I don't work for ThoughtBot and I come and contribute heavily to those repos, what happens? Right. We likely have some repos that are still under ThoughtBot that are maintained by people who no longer work here. Right. Right. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I'm sure we do. And that's and that's for me where it, it gets fun. like I have I have no issues if it's a project that's very clearly primarily one person mm -hmm. or if the funding is specifically like fund me. And I mean, I don't necessarily like it so much when it's fund me specifically because uh, because then it's a little more ambiguous what you're exactly helping to support. Mm -hmm. But definitely if it's oriented towards help help support this project and that project is primarily supported by one person, then I have less of an issue with it. You know, generally that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that a, a project that's generally handled by one person would actually pull in that much money in something right. like this. Uh, sure. Just because it wouldn't reach the size. But like, let's talk about Sidekick, right? So Sidekick does the enterprise licensing. It doesn't do the tip jar kind of thing. Right. Like, how is that different, right? <laughs> Um, I mean, it's, it, it's, <laughs> okay, so here's one thing that's, that, that's different about Sidekick, regardless of how they're going about funding it. Mike Perham, 1,400 commits, the next uh, largest contributor has under 100 and hasn't committed since 2016. Right. Okay. Problem solved. I mean, <laughs> this, it's just one of those cases where it's very clear it's going to paying Mike, Mike's bills as he works on Sidekick. 
Right. And it's also one of those things where, like, I say sidekick, and if I think about who is sidekick, I think Mike. Right? If I think, like, who is Rails, I think of a whole bunch of people. So that's a harder question to answer. I think it's also, you know, when I say my question is what happens when some other contributor comes to these projects, I'm not saying that necessarily, like, this means, oh, this is terrible because there might be another person who commits the project and isn't compensated for it. Certainly in the case of Sidekick, it's very clear, like, where the money goes and how it's distributed. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's going to be any ambiguity going in as to whether or not you're going to be compensated for your time if you choose to work on that project. Right. And also clear who it's coming from, which is enterprise customers. Right. Which, you know, you feel less bad about. <laughs> right. <laughs> I am kind of fond of the idea of a license that says that if your company uses this open source software for a product that brings in net revenue of over a million dollars a year, you have to pay for it. Does such a license exist like in a boilerplate way? I doubt it. Hmm. I know I've heard specifically, like, the idea of a license that is roughly that is something I've heard mentioned enough that I would expect that maybe somebody's written a boilerplate version of it, but I doubt there's one that's actually in use by a significant number of um, projects. Like, Mike's license strategy is the dual licensing, right? Where basically he entices enterprises to pay to get rid of the more restrictive license. That is placed well, and then on also them. just Sidekick Pro has features that aren't right. in Sidekick proper. Right. I'll link in the show notes where he had a blog post a while back about how to do dual licensing to fund open source software. And it was really good. So uh, yeah. we'll link to the show. We'll link in the show notes to that. I think he, he was one of the story of where he had the do no evil in his license, right? And IBM ended up paying him to uh, get it licensed with it without the do no evil uh, clause. <laughs> Are you serious? That can't be true. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a story. It's definitely a story I've heard. And I think it was from sidekick. It might've been from something else. I read it on the internet. <laughs> We would like to do evil. We would like to eliminate I, the question of whether or not something is evil. Right. So. I, think, I, I think it's more lawyers being lawyery than specifically right. we would right. like to use this to do evil. <laughs> yeah. Um, I started a new project a few weeks ago we could talk about. Sure. Um, so it's for this company called Notarize in Boston. They, it's actually a really interesting problem. I didn't know that, like, when I heard of the idea of the company, I was like, I didn't even know that was possible having, like, have you ever gotten something notarized before? Yeah, it's harder in Canada. Okay, well, you basically, you got to go to the bank or wherever, wherever a notary might be. In Canada, it's a lawyer. You have to go to a lawyer specifically. Okay, so you go somewhere where there might be a notary and then they, like, use a, like, a big giant stamp that, like, embosses the paper with, like the look of their stamp that says I'm a notary and I, uh, yep, they definitely signed it. They proved they were, they showed me two forms of identification, et cetera, et cetera. So this company Notarize is doing all that online, which uh, I didn't know one could do, but evidently more. Yeah, that seems like it defeats (laughs) the purpose of getting something notarized. Evidently more and more states are allowing for such things and they're going to start getting into doing mortgages and things like that. So it's actually really interesting and I got it up and running locally and running and it's it's pretty cool how they do it. It's like, oh, this actually isn't all that dissimilar to going to a notary. They use like WebRTC, so you have to like hold up your a picture of your identification on the front and turn it over and show the picture of the identification on the back. Oh, and you actually have to do like a video chat. Yeah, with and you have to do a video chat with the notary. Oh, okay, that seems right. that's very reasonable. I thought I thought this was like DocuSign level of uh, no. verification. It's the same kind of thing on signatures. Like you just like you end up just typing, and it gives you this nice looking signature, right? Or you can sure. also you can also like scan a piece of paper with your signature if you want your real signature in there for whatever reason. But yeah, it's a really it's really interesting. Like you get into it and you get like this meeting going on with um 
you know, you have the notary on one side of the WebRTC connection, you have the person who needs something notarized on the other side, and the notary supposedly walks them through it and is like, yep, you have to sign here, you have to sign here, and then like, okay, I'm going to stamp this now and then put my signature on it with like my commission expires on, blah, 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 blah. And it was really cool. I was I was surprised. And it's also using uh, Action Cable, which is the first time huh. I've used a project with Action Cable. So it does that to like sync the things that are happening between the signer and the notary. So like when the notary is moving through pages in the document, it also moves the signer through so that like they're both looking at the same thing, mm. you know, all sorts of interesting things like that. Uh, and it's the first time I haven't dug too much into the, uh, the action cable stuff, but I did see, I did review one pull request and was like, it did have tests for the action cable stuff, but I was like, this looks like a weird test. Like what? I don't know if there's a better way. And the person who wrote the thing was like, I also have no idea if there's a better way. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> it's like, okay. But anyway, yeah, really cool. And also like a technically very interesting project. So originally the first version of it was written by another consultancy. They did a great job getting the application up and running. And now Notarize is trying to build their own team, which by the way, they're hiring and they're a pretty cool company. And uh, the engineering manager over there is also an ex ThoughtBot employee. So you should check them out. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for them. Anyway. So on like day one, there I think it's their CTO, maybe. I think that's his title. I'm not sure. But he sat us down and we had a meeting about he's like, I want to show you some like technically interesting things with the code base. And the first thing I noticed is like there are hundreds of service objects, which I know you love the term service objects. Oh, yes. Like, My favorite term. Almost everything is done in the application through service objects. So like as an example, when I wanted to, I had to do something that changed how documents get signed, like not like their signature put on the paper, but like how we actually put an encrypt, like a signature on the document. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I don't even know where that would be. And I just hit control P and I typed sign. <laughs> and it was like, sure enough, like app services documents signed on RB. <laughs> I was like, this is pretty cool. Like this is, this nice. is nice. And like, it's clear that the people who were like first involved in the project were very influenced by their experiences in Elixir because they tried to follow, like the service objects tried to follow a very like functional programming kind of style. Mm-hmm. Although it seems as they've evolved, they lost the thread a little bit. Like here's my guessing just by like doing some, uh, what do they call it? Some investigation, I guess, and in the Git history and just in like what happened here. But it seems like everything kind of started out functional and then people were like, okay, I get this. I have to create a service object for the things that I want to do. But then like it would end up doing some mutation. Then you had this thing where like this service object had to run before this other service object because de- the mutation, like it depended on this mutation happening. Mm-hmm. So it got, it, it, it's a little bit complicated there. But there are also these parts of the application where they used pipes. They basically created a way to do Elixir pipelines in Ruby um, by overriding. The technical implementation was really interesting, actually. So, like, they over. Did they override bitwise or? They overrid self dot brackets. So, like, the brackets method on the class. And that's the new constructor method. Okay. And so it was. I'd have to try and pull up. Let me see if I can pull it up to talk about it. But anyway, uh, they did a lot of chaining that way. And I thought it was pretty interesting, at least just from a technical perspective, I would have loved to see. They were already almost all the way through unwinding that. I guess they didn't like it. I kind of would have liked to see it in more places. I mean, I'd imagine it makes onboarding new developers difficult. Right. And that's kind of the, the takeaway from what I've seen is like, there's a lot of stuff that between Action Cable and the million service objects and using Ruby like Elixir in many places, 
Right. I mean, the um, first two just sound like, sure. I mean, that's how most people develop Rails apps these days. I guess, yeah. I mean, maybe not Maybe not most people using Action Cable, but like <laughs> millions of little service objects. Yeah. If we're going to call them service objects. <laughs> I know you hate that, but that's where they are. App services, so they must be service objects. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. So they're moving away from that pipeline thing. I've only seen it in a couple places in the code. And it's, I've it, got a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Just before we go on, if you have a really tiny service object, mm -hmm. is it a microservice object? <laughs> And is this what all the cool if, kids are talking about? If all your service objects are really tiny, is it a microservice architecture? Exactly. <laughs> sorry, sorry. It sure is. Yeah, but yeah, it's been interesting because there's been there's a lot of like I don't know. There's just a, it's a huge code base, but it doesn't feel that way as you're moving through the service objects. They're a little bit confusing because of I think I think they lost the thread a little bit along the way as the team got bigger. And things don't hang together quite as well. And like the things that are doing mutations definitely should not be class methods on a mo or module methods. Like you, yeah. you should probably instantiate a class and do some mutation inside with state and things like that. See, um, my opinion on mutability sort of drifted over time. And right now, where I'm at in Ruby is mutability is fine, but the only thing you should be mutating is self. Okay. Yeah, I think the more confusing thing it's not necessarily the mutation that's happened that happens. It's sometimes. It's hard to know when I'm calling one of these service objects if I'm going to get back the mutated thing or if I'm just expected to continue on using the reference to the mutated thing or if I'm getting back a new thing. Like, it's really hard to use, hard to know because it's inconsistent in that way. Right. That's why only mutating self is helpful. Right. You always know exactly, exactly right. what's, what's going to get changed. You don't have to reassign. <laughs> and the other interesting thing that this application had going for it, have you seen contracts.ruby? I don't know if I've seen that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've seen something along those lines. You should look at it. It's pretty interesting. So it was the first thing I noticed, like when I started opening up, opening up files, I was like, what are all these constants here? What, what's going on here? Oh, uh, no, I have not seen this before. This looks not like a thing I want. <laughs> it's interesting. Like the, the, the first retro we had, I was like, I want to know how people feel about this contracts thing. Cause it's like, I don't have any feelings one way or another on it yet. It's just weird, right? It's just as a Ruby developer, it's not what I expect to see here. Yeah, and it's interest. It's interest. I keep saying it's interesting, but it's interesting in several different ways. The first is like it tries to give contracts, right? And you can control in which environments those contracts get enforced. So you can say like in test and development, raise if the contract's broken; otherwise, just ignore it. Which is mm, somewhat useful, but I will say in the hands of people who aren't like familiar with how to get the most use out of something like this, when everything is a primitive, like when every contract is based on a series of primitives, it's not entirely valuable. Yeah. Um, like when every contract is string, string, and it returns a string, it's like, well, okay. That's just, I mean, you're, you're basically adding Java's type system. Like that's yes. not useful for expressing things. That was my summation too. Is that it's it's a weak type system at best, and it also layers on something that's really odd to Ruby programmers, which is uh, pattern matching at the function definition level. <laughs> I haven't looked under the hood to see how it's doing this, but you can define the same method multiple times with a different contract, and it will decide at runtime which one of those actually gets called based on what you pass it. It's not pattern matching. That's going to be static overloading, right? Right, but in... It's just overloading based on type, not based on value. Mm, you can do a lot with the contracts. I don't know if you can specify the value of a thing. But yes, it's meant... Uh, the way I've seen it is based on type. Like, um, this application... So is it's you, literally Java's type system. <laughs> 
this application, as you might imagine, does a lot with PDFs. So like a common place I see it is like, I see this overriding is like, they'll have one version of the method that takes a file and another version of the method takes a file path as the argument. And then they will call the other one with the path or whatever the case may be. I'd much rather just know what I'm supposed to call it with and have one version of it. But you know, it's a interesting thing to look at. <laughs> and it also does offer, I think if you used more higher level types with things, it would be better for documentation. Like I already did one change today where I took, there was this data clump of, a, of like a file path, a password, and um, the name of like the root certificate that was supposed to be used. It all, it all represented like the certificate you were going to sign the document with. And so I extracted out a value object that just encapsulates like, here's what the certificate looks like that I'm going to, I'm going to sign this document with. And then all the places where the contract said like, take string, 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 I was able to update to take signing certificate, which has some documentation value, I guess. Sure. I'm not sure it's much beyond naming the variable signing certificate, but I'm trying to give it a chance. And there's been a couple times where it's interesting, but I'm looking through the source of built-in contracts. And so there are contracts for uh, natural numbers, positive numbers, natural positive numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, there is actually a contract for response to these methods. Yep. So you can get close to actually dealing with interfaces, mm -hmm. kind of. You can have a contract that specifies that when sent a given method, it responds with a truthy value. So you could um, make it so that it only takes active record objects, which are valid. Or persistent. Or persistent. Yeah. I don't know. These sort of things are best verified at compile time. I don't want a bunch of runtime assertions that types match slowing down my program. Right. And I don't know what the, what the overhead is at runtime in production. And certainly in production it's turned off the, okay. type, the type checking part is turned off although if it's doing the pattern matching it has to do some sort of type checking to tell which one of those it needs maybe it only does it when it absolutely has to in that circumstance to do the pattern matching or something but i keep meaning to look and see how they're doing this under the hood because it I, on one hand i'm scared of how it's done and on the other hand i'm also academically very curious yeah i'm also curious my first thought was that because it's, it's clearly defining the contract function with a capital c and all of these are methods, right? Not constants, even though they happen to have capital letters. I had never even considered that they were methods. <laughs> okay, well, they're definitely methods. Of course um, they are. Yes, now that you say uh, that. <laughs> but my, my first thought was like, okay, and then it's just taking the method name as an argument, except that can't be the case because it's using implicit hash as the last argument syntax. And there's the new line there. So def is, is going to be a separate statement, not right. not considered to be an argument to contracts. So I'm so actually hooking really into curious. Method defined? It must be hooked. Yeah, must be hooking into method defined. I'm trying to find where it's actually um, hooked in because uh, it's, a class, it's a module called method decorators, which I can't find. <laughs> all, the, all that the method is doing is calling self.class.contract. Okay. But it should, it's already a class method, so I'm not sure. So it's self.class.class. <laughs> okay it seems to be a pretty well-run project like just from i've read through a couple issues that i've run into like i ran into a thing today where i was like i wonder if i can define like a contract and use pattern matching with different arity because i wanted to update there were some calls to this like with the certificate thing i was mentioning that were going to be really difficult to refactor immediately into like no, no, instead of passing these component attributes of a certificate, let's pass a certificate object. So I wanted to keep the old definition around. And then I wanted to have a new definition that just only took two arguments, which was the thing you wanted to sign and the certificate you wanted to sign it with. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I defined one contract that was just those two arguments. And then I left the other contract that was like these three or four arguments, whatever it ends up taking. I can't remember. And supposedly that's supposed to work, but it didn't work for me. So what I ended up doing was just renaming the one that only takes the document and the certificate, which probably is <laughs> how I would do that. And, and you uh, could also just take splat args. Yeah, but I'd rather be told them doing it wrong. If I say, like, sign it with this certificate and then pass a whole bunch of ARGs that are going to end up getting ignored would be kind of obnoxious. Well, no, you wouldn't You wouldn't ignore them, right? You would say, right. if it's length is whatever, do right. X. If it's length is whatever, do Y. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, it is hooking into uh, method added is how it works. Cool. And it's actually a decently well-written library just from skimming through it like this code is surprisingly easy to understand for the amount of ridiculous metaprogramming it's doing right and like like i was saying i was reading through some of the issues and i was like oh all of these decisions seem like really well reasoned and the prs that i saw all had like performance benchmarking with them so they you know it's it's really interesting i said that said that word a lot but it's still not a thing i want in my project it's still not really a thing i would do in ruby either but I'm it not, also doesn't I'm, look like it's super maintained. Oh, really? Eh, May 23rd? I'm, I'm looking at just the actual commit graph, and, like, basically activity has mostly died since 2016. Well, maybe it's done. Maybe. <laughs> There's uh, 36 open issues. That's not a lot. No, it's not. It has a 1,000 stars, you know? It's not bad. Anyway, lots of interesting things going on in this application. And, and like, it's just a really interesting domain because somebody's going to end up doing this uh, and doing it really well because it just mm-hmm. is better than finding a notary and having to go to them. It'll be really interesting to see how it shakes out. So who's the ex person there? Because their team page does not list the development director. It's Steph, our, our Android developer. Oh, okay. Who was hired to go there and write uh, their Android app and ended up becoming the... I hope I'm not misquoting his title as like the director of engineering or engineering team lead or something like that. But he's the person who got in touch with us about coming on and they're trying to build up their team and want us to kind of try and give uh, some local guidance to people on like best practices and stuff like yeah. that. And just to help them out while they're building their team. And, you know, the original consultancy is not local so that they don't, they don't have the ability to do that. So that's what I've been working on. Okay, so I actually had a I actually had a funny thing. I was surprised a few of these bugs were still around. Remember I how, remember when I was justifying the the big breaking change in Rails 5.1 with dirty and after callbacks? Yep. And how I claimed it made double save bugs impossible. <laughs> uh, well, there's an issue open for a double save bug, or it, it was a little bit of a different kind of double save bug. It was a counter cache getting uh, incremented twice. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the bugs that should have been impossible. Mm-hmm. I never actually figured out why it was able to stick around. But what was funny was um, Lisa, the person who, who's working on the Rails team right now, had a, had a pull request for it. So that morning, I had gone and removed all of the deprecation warnings and just switched the code over to like, okay, now we can remove a bunch of this duplicated stuff because we don't need to keep you know two sets of dirty tracking around during after callbacks. And so I pull down, I'm looking at these spore costs. I'm like, oh, this should be impossible. I wonder if just if I remove this flag entirely, if that also fixes the problem. I did. I'm like, wait, so what happens if I leave the code as it was and just grab her test, pull down the test, and it passes without the code changes? I'm like, <laughs> okay, wait, was this actually just removing the deprecation warnings? And so go to the commit before that test fails. So apparently there were a few a few double save bugs that were still possible in 5.1 that <laughs> have been fixed. It was it was basically just the the stuff we could clear before after callbacks were run versus the stuff we, we cleared after after callbacks were run. 
I think there was just one thing that keys for partial right was using was using one of the methods that was switching behavior. And so that ended up slipping through. But anyway, it's fixed now. <laughs> you just had to believe in the impossible. Just had to and believe you, in the impossible. Yeah. Sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before I ate breakfast. <laughs> On that note, should we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 120. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>